Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Morning, it is good to see everyone that is here again, gathered together online and in person to worship God, to sing songs of praise together. Thank you, Matthew, for those songs. Very good job. And thank you, Steve, for those too. And it's good to see that we had our Bible classes are starting to come back. If you didn't know, we started Sunday school back for the kids and the teens this morning at 9.30 there in the fellowship hall. Um, for the kids and the teens are in the teen room. Um, starting next week, we will have the class back here in the auditorium at 9.30 um, as well. So we'll have 9.30 Bible class and 10.30 will be our worship time. With that, I don't know when we're going to have our full Bible class program back just yet. We kind of have some different phases that we're kind of rolling out as we go along. But maybe we'll outline those a little bit in more detail in the future, but we are excited to start to open up a few more things and to be able to gather together more often. As you remember, last week we began a course of study on Sunday morning talking about why do we believe what we believe. We discussed how it's important for us to not just approach everything on the basis of faith. Now, that might sound bad in a church building, right? Yes, I know we have to have faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. However, you can't just have this, this blind faith where people go, well, I, I believe in God because I feel it in my heart. That, that doesn't fly, right? It's more than that. Well, I, I believe that Christianity is true because I just know it to be. Well, that, you got to have some more reasoning behind that because there's a lot of people, first off, that don't believe in God and they want to know why you do. And if we can't give them a legitimate answer, that's a problem. Same way with our lesson this morning when we talk about believing in God. The Bible, I think as a whole, we have a hard time answering the question, why? Some of it is we've been living in a bubble. We are kind of sheltered in a sense in our American culture where you kind of have the assumption that most people, now I know that cultures shift and change and, and the dynamic, you know, and so on changes. However, there's always kind of been the assumption for 100 years or so or more that, well, most people believe in God, and when you say the Bible says so, they kind of view that as an authority. Even though they might not follow it, in the back of everybody's mind, everybody kind of has that. Somebody somewhere probably was brought, took them to church at one time in their life, and they kind of believe in God and, you know, in heaven and that kind of idea. But because of that, we've been kind of sheltered in that we haven't had to answer for our faith, and we've become weak in that way. Also, I think as a church, we do a bad job, as I mentioned last week, in teaching people how to deal with these difficult questions. One, because we don't actually know why we believe what we believe. It's just habit. And if the reason you're here today is just habit, that's a problem. It needs to be more than that. It can't be, well, I've just always gone to church my whole life. It's more than that. And also, too, I think as a church, we don't give people the opportunity to question their faith. We, we kind of look down upon people. If your kids or someone in class says, you know, I don't always know if I believe the Bible to be true. We go, oh, how dare you, as opposed to going, that's a good question. Let's talk about it. And as I already mentioned, sometimes our arguments for why we believe what we believe are a little bit weak. So last week, what I did was that I started with a quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're thinking, again, if you're new here, well, he's not a preacher. No, he's not, and I don't follow his theology. However, he did lay out these five rules for examining things. I thought these rules were good. Number one, question authority. Number two, think for yourself. Don't believe anything just because you want to. Number three, test ideas by the evidence gained by observation and experiment. Number four, follow the evidence wherever it leads. And number five, remember you could be wrong. 
This is, these are important guidelines, I think, for dealing with difficult questions like we did last week of, is there a God? So what we tried to do last week is we looked at this, that topic, we questioned, and we thought, and we observed, and we followed the evidence, and it led me to the conclusion, I hope it did you too, that there is a God. I think you can prove that from evidence. I think that's logical to believe. It's not just some fanciful fairy tale idea. I believe you can prove there is a God. This same way of looking at things, of questioning, observing, and following the evidence has also led me, and I hope it's going to lead you too, to the conclusion that the Bible, the book that you have there in front of you or I'm holding in my hand and I'm going to be quoting on the screen, has been influenced supernaturally. I believe the evidence points us toward that conclusion. Just like with the universe, when I considered the universe, the physical laws, life, morality, the only logical answer of the question of where did it come from is God. And that God, who is all-powerful, all-good, and all-knowing, is the only answer that, to that question of how did this all come to be. And I believe that that is the God that the Bible presents. The God that the Bible presents is the God that best answers the question of why. Why am I here? What's my purpose? How did this all come to be? But the next step we have to take then, we believe that there's a God. And we believe, that, you know, the God of the Bible seems to match up where, with what my logic and reason and conclusions are to, you know, the universe creator. But as we look at the God of the Bible, the question we have is, has this creator, this creator of everything that we know, has he or what if he did communicate with his creation specifically what if he communicated with his creation through this sacred text that we call the bible right i mean that's an important question if there is a god that created the universe did that god that created the universe communicate with his creation in some way many people believe that that god created who created the universe communicates through this book called the Bible. Is that a reasonable conclusion? That's a fair question. And that's a question that we need to work through ourselves. Is it logical and is it reasonable to believe that the Bible is inspired? Now, I know the Bible, even if it wasn't inspired, is motivational. I know it has good self-help principles in it. I know that there's sections that are entertaining to read. Some are a little bit dry when you get into like Leviticus and things like that. But I mean, as a whole, okay, I can see why there's benefit to studying it, but is the Bible inspired? And if it is inspired, that takes it to a whole other realm of authority too. Is it logical and is it reasonable to believe that the Bible is inspired? Let's talk about that word though for a second. When a theologian, when a preacher, when someone gets up and says, I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, what do they mean? Well, this word inspired is actually used in the Bible, depending on your English translation. Um, it's a compound word that has the word theos, which means God, and the word pneuma, which means breath. We get pneumatic from it, like air tools, right? It's, it's breath, it's air, this idea. So this compound word, theonoustos, which is used in the Bible for its translated inspiration, can literally be defined as breath of God or breathed out by God. So although we might use the phrase, I was inspired to write this song, it's a little bit different than the way the Bible uses that word. So don't take our modern definition of inspiration and transfer it over into the Bible, because the way the Bible uses it is not the same as we might use it today. 
A great artist is inspired to paint, but it doesn't mean they're divinely necessarily guided. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I might watch a motivational video on YouTube and I'm inspired to work. It's not the same kind of idea. But this word, inspired, is used in the Bible. This is a huge claim. The Bible itself claims to be breathed out by God. That's rare for a book to do. Now, there are other books that claim to be from God, but here's the claim the Bible makes. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So the Bible, at least Paul here in his letter to Timothy, is saying, Timothy, you need to follow the scriptures, study the scriptures, and preach the scriptures, because Timothy wasn't doing it. And Paul tells him, because all scripture is inspired. Now, that's a big claim this man, Paul, who's called an apostle, made. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, in a letter to churches, Peter wrote this. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Again, that is a huge claim. Think about this. A book claiming to be inspired, a book claiming to be breathed out by God is a big deal. Can the Bible back up that claim? That's the question that we have to ask, right? I mean, we are, sometimes we don't, we don't ask that question because we already assume that belief. But the Bible claims to be from God. Is there evidence that it is? When we talked about this universe last week, we discussed that if there's evidence in the universe of design and of purpose and of intent and all of that, that pointed us toward the conclusion that someone or something designed it. The Bible claims to have the design of God behind it. Can it prove it? Can we look at it and study it and walk through it and come to that conclusion that, oh, yes, God did have his hand in it? I think we can. But before we get into that, let's ask the question real quick just to make sure we're all on the same page. What is the Bible? Because I know maybe you, you might be new if you're tuning in online. I know maybe you don't come from a church background at all. What is the Bible? Now, I know you're probably familiar with what a Bible looks like and that idea. Here's my Bible. It's my favorite Bible. I can't preach without it. You know, here's the Bible, right? Well, what is the Bible? First off, you need to understand if you're new to the Bible, maybe we need this by way of review. The Bible itself is not one book. It is and it isn't. The Bible is kind of an anthology. It contains 66 different books, okay? These 66 different books were written at different times. They were gathered and they were saved and they were copied and they were circulated by Jews at first in the Old Testament time and then later by Christians after the time of Jesus. So these are, this big book contains 66 different books. Now some of those books are biographies. Some of those books are history. Some of those books are poetry. Some of those books are prophecy. Some of those books are historical narrative. Some of those books, you know, are apocalyptic, and that's a whole other type of genre of literature we'll talk about another time. But the Bible contains 66 different books that were gathered, that were saved, that were copied, and were circulated by believers. And of those 66 different books, they were probably written by about 44 different authors. Okay? So it wasn't just that some with a long beard sat down and wrote everything down in this book. It was written by 44 different people. And in fact, those books 
we're, the span of writing from the first book to the last one is about 1,500 years. So it wasn't all written at one time. In fact, if you went back in time to the year, you know, 1200 BC, the books that you had that were from God or you would claim were from God would be limited compared to what's later after the time of Jesus because those ones weren't written yet. The oldest Old Testament books are said to be written by Moses around the year 1400 BC. Um, Job might be thought to be even earlier, but there's kind of up for debate. But oldest ones about 1400 years before Jesus, the first books of the Bible were written. Now, the first New Testament books were written around 15 years after Jesus died, and the first biographies of Jesus were written about 20 years after he died. People are spreading the message of Jesus, and his followers say, hey, we need to write down this story, and they write down, you know, about Jesus, and that's what circulated. So the Bible as a whole, 44 or 66 different books, written by 44 different authors over a period of 1,500 different years, Three different languages, too. The Bible contains um, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and, you know, different cultures and all of that. So then as we look at it then, too, oh, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, was also written around 90 A.D. So 1500 B.C. to 90 A.D. is the time that all these books of the Bible were written. So a very, very long time. Question is then, Cliff Saber, as your preacher, why does he think that the Bible is inspired? Why do I look at this as more than just a good book? I like reading. There's a lot of books that I read. There's a lot of books that I learn from. But the Bible, I believe, is different. So what I want to do today, and we'll just give it over real quickly because there's no way we can cover every evidence for inspiration in a 20-minute lesson. However, I want to give you some bullet points that I want you to take home and study on your own and see if it makes sense to you too. Don't just take my word for it, right? We need to dig into the evidence. But what makes me believe the Bible is inspired? Let me give you a few. Number one, the reason why I believe the Bible is divinely guided, you know, is, is inspired, that God had a hand in it, is first and foremost, the continuity of the Bible. Now, I think, what do you mean by that? The fact that it kind of all works together. As you go through it, you begin to see, and it takes some work studying, because you can't just pick up your Bible and open up to one verse and go, I'm going to prove if it's from God. Well, I don't know. You, but as you read through it, and you start to study it, and you look through it, you begin to see that, wait a second, this tells the same story. Now, that's normal for most books, okay? I expect for me to pick up a book, and it's going to tell the story beginning to end. That's what books are to do. However, books that are actually 66 different books, written by 44 different men over a period of 1,500 years in different cultures, times, and languages, don't usually have continuity, yet the Bible does. It starts with the creation of man and the fall in the garden, and the whole book talks about how it's going to fix that, and then it's all pointing toward Jesus, and then when it gets to Jesus, it talks about how his followers spread that same message and how they're fulfilling what was prophesied about way back when. You're like, wait a second. This looks like something that would have been written by one person in one place, but I know historically it wasn't. It was, I mean, you're... you're greatest doubter of scripture who doesn't even believe in the existence of God believes that the Bible wasn't all written at one time. I mean, we know that. But yet, how did this book work itself out where you have continuity of thought? Josh McDowell in his book wrote this. I want to share you with you this quote, and I have a screen so you have to listen. It says, in the uniqueness of its continuity, the Bible was written over a 1,500 years span, like we've been talking about, 
was written over 40 generations, was written by more than 40 authors from every walk of life, including kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, and scholars, Peter a fisherman, Amos a herdsman, Joshua a military general, Daniel a prime minister, Luke a doctor, Solomon a king, Matthew a tax collector, Paul a rabbi, Timothy an Asian. They shouldn't all tell the same story, right? Was written in different places, wilderness, dungeon, palace, prison, travel, and an island, written at different times, written in different moods, written on different continents of Asia, Africa, and Europe, written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, yet permeating world cultures. Subject matter includes hundreds of topics and even controversial ones. Yet despite this diversity, the biblical authors spoke with harmony and continuity from Genesis to Revelation about one unfolding narrative, God's redemption of man. You cannot get people like that to normally get along. But yet, all these different people writing in different places, when their works were gathered together, it told one unified story. How did it do that? I mean, you ever play telephone as a kid? Right? I mean, where one person at the end of the classroom and all the kids line up and the teacher says, all right, now I want you to repeat this phrase, the pickles need more mayonnaise, and you have to repeat that through the line. Maybe your teacher didn't say that one. But you had to repeat that phrase through the line, and when you get to the kid at the end, the kid says, my dog has fleas, right? The story changes. It's different. How did these all people in different times and different cultures tell a story that lines up? Now, I know there's certain areas in Scripture that you're like, well, that, that seems to maybe go against this. Those areas are minute and usually can be answered. But yet, as a whole, the Bible tells the story of redemption from beginning to end. How did it accomplish that? Also, with the style of the Bible. The Bible has a very specific style in what subjects it deals with and what subjects it doesn't. Now, you might be thinking, well, okay, but the Bible is very condensed. Have you ever had those times where you wish the Bible dealt with something and it didn't? Why doesn't the Bible talk more about angels? Man, I wish it did, right? Those kinds of things. Why doesn't the Bible talk more about the afterlife? All those kinds of things. It doesn't. And yet, if it had human invention behind it, we'd probably deal with the topics that were of interest to us and not deal with the topics that would be a challenge to us. And we definitely wouldn't talk about our own shortcomings as authors, and we wouldn't mention the sins of great leaders of God's people. No, we'd present them always as a great hero. We would leave out the fact that David slept with Bathsheba, right? We would leave out the fact that Moses killed an Egyptian. We would leave out the denial of Peter. We would leave out all those things, but yet they're in there. That style goes through it, and that style to me makes me think that, wait a second, there's design behind this. And the design is so precise that it couldn't come from human origins. Let me illustrate it. This morning, downstairs on the kitchen table, there was Valentine's. Gwen wrote one to me. Here's Gwen's. I love you. Love Gwen. Gwen's like, how old are you, Gwen? Seven years old, right? Gwen's seven years old. And I look at this, and I see the note, and I have no doubt that Gwen wrote this note. It's Gwen's handwriting. It's with a pink and red pin because she likes pink and red, and it's Valentine's Day. There's candy near it, and that's a Valentine from Gwen. It makes sense that it's from Gwen. It has her style. It is written in her language. It has her artistic flair to it. 
and it just has the overall Gwen feeling to it. Also, though, when I came downstairs, I also saw a box of Valentine Pops. Now, when Gwen told me that she made me a Valentine and it's downstairs, and I saw the Valentine Pops on the counter, I didn't go, oh, Gwen made that. Now, Gwen's very talented. Gwen, aren't you talented? Yes, Gwen's talented. But Gwen cannot make Charms Valentine's Pops. She does not have a sugar injection molding machine to make these heart-shaped lollipops. She does not have the financial means to buy the sticks to put in there. She does not have the packaging, you know, apparatus that puts it together. She does not have the cardboard box maker or the printer to put it all together. She did not make those lollipops. I knew without a doubt she made that. But this right here is beyond Gwen's ability. Now, she could claim it, Dad, I made you a box of lollipops. She's lying if she said that. She would never say that. But, you know, the design of the lollipops makes me believe that someone with a greater skill set than my daughter produced that. Wherever the Charms Valentine Pop Factory is, there's people there that have skills to make it, and they made it because they have the equipment and the ability and the means to do that. Gwen does not. Gwen makes her own Valentine, which is better than the Charmed one anyway. But, right, we gave the illustration last week with the cell phone. When you look at a cell phone, you look at it and you go, wait a second. There's design here beyond the ability of just this happening by chance. There's evidence here that there's intentionality. When we look at it, there's a clear function and purpose to it, and it all works together wonderfully that, okay, this couldn't have happened by accident. We talked about that with the universe. What about the Bible too? When you start to examine the Bible, you say, wait a second, there's some continuity there and uniformity that, that wouldn't happen if just humans were involved in this. There's no way that they could tell the same story beginning to end and multiple people in different languages and different places at different times somehow making that all work. It doesn't happen. And that's just the idea of the continuity of the Bible. When you go on, there's more evidence of it. But that alone tells me, man, I really have a hard time thinking that just a bunch of fishermen and, and, and shepherds and kings and all these people got together and just wrote that. That just doesn't seem to make sense. Well, where else does that evidence push us? See, the evidence starts to take me away from that just some long-haired bearded guy in Babylon wrote this down. There's something different there. There's something deeper there is design, and where there is design, there must be a designer. And when there is an effect, there must be a cause adequate enough to create that effect, as we talked about last week. And what could create a Bible, a book like this? Maybe God. Let's keep going. Well, another reason why I believe in the, in the inspiration of Scripture, this is a few more, the preservation of Scripture. Man, it's lasted, and it's preserved so well. The manuscript evidence for like the New Testament, we have like 5,000 manuscripts for the New Testament. We have like 500 of Homer's Iliad, okay? I mean, you think about the evidence, overwhelming evidence for the preservation of Scripture. How come it hasn't died out? How come it's always a bestseller? How come people have tried to destroy it like Diocletian and Antiochus Epiphanes never prevailed? Because they can't. What about the fact that the Bible is so popular? Now, I know that by itself isn't evidence for inspiration. Don't go up to your friends and go, you should follow the Bible because it's popular. No. But it is very popular. Why? What about the influence of it? How come so many songs, um, poems, and, and artistic works have been made throughout history because of the Bible? It has influenced so much, makes me think 
that maybe there's something there beyond it being just a normal book. Another evidence for inspiration. What about the scientifically accurate information contained in the Bible? Now, the Bible is not a book of science. I will tell you that first and foremost. People do it a disservice when they try to read it as if it's presenting scientific argumentation. That's not the way it was designed. And you'll come up with some weird ideas sometimes when you do that. However, there are places where you start to think, you know, there seems to be a deeper level of knowledge here than what these people back then would have had. I'll give you an example. There's a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 15, where God tells the Israelites that basically if you follow me, I'm going to protect you from all the diseases that you got in Egypt. Okay? Now, I know, if, even if you don't believe in the Bible, you know that the Bible contains um, supernatural promises and things like that, even if you don't believe they're true. So you might be thinking, okay, yeah, big deal. Of course the God of the Bible would have said something like that. Okay. The God of the Bible promised his people, the Israelites, after they fled Egypt, that he would protect them from diseases. When you start to study the Old Testament, specifically the books like Leviticus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you begin to find a lot of laws that are very precise and specific. And many of them, not to be gross, had to do with hygiene and sanitation. Now, this stands out to me because, well, historically, back then, you look at history, humanity didn't always have the best hygiene and sanitation practices. But yet, these people, through Moses, supposedly God gave Moses these laws and told them to tell the Israelites to do these different things. For example, Leviticus 15 has laws about bathing and washing. What was that going to do? Help them not get sick. They didn't know that. People didn't know about germs back then. Deuteronomy chapter 23, and in verse 12 and onward, it literally says this. It says, and kind of gross, it says, a private place should be designated for your use outside the camp. Talking about going to the bathroom. And there is where you should go. A peg should be put on your equipment, and when you squat outside, you should dig a hole with it and cover your excrement. You ever had a poop sermon before, right? But listen up. Here's the reason. When you look at this, these laws for sanitation kept disease out of Israel. They didn't know all that. I mean, it wasn't until a couple hundred years ago people were still dumping their sewage outside their window and alleyways, right? I mean, plagues were spread like that. I mean, we had to be reminded during COVID to wash our hands, people, okay? But yet, here, God is telling them thousands of years before we even had an idea about bacteria and germs and stuff like that to take care of your waste and all of that. There's even quarantine laws. We've had a lot of quarantine stuff come up recently, right? And people that were sick had to be away from everybody. And if you were around somebody who was sick, you had to be away from everybody, like Leviticus 5 and Numbers 19 talks about. If you touched a dead body who maybe died from some kind of weird sickness, you too have to stay away from everybody. They had quarantine laws before people even had an idea of where diseases came from. I mean, think about it. A thousand years after that, people were blaming the blind man of his parents' sins. They're saying, well, his parents' sins, that's why he's born blind. They had no idea. They didn't know it back then. But who gave them these strict sanitary laws? How did they have this clue? Historically, it wasn't until like the 1870s that even in like medical facilities, they would like wash their hands or sterilize instruments. And I came across this, and you people that work in medicine can maybe prove me wrong, but I guess apparently there wasn't even a universal law 
about hand washing in medical facilities, you know, I mean, everybody had their own policies, of course, but a universal one in America until the 80s. And even now we're doing better with it. You ever go to the doctor recently? Every time your doctor walks into the room, what does he do? Hits that little hand sanitizer and sanitizes their hands. Why? Because we know that illnesses are spread through germs and we can carry germs. And yet back then when the Bible was written, they thought that, well, you eat a live lizard and rub rat urine in your eyes, and that's how you're going to get rid of an illness. I mean, that was the kind of stuff they were coming up with. But yet, in the Old Testament, it comes up with these hygiene laws that are outside of the knowledge of the people at that time. I mean, even until recently, right? Oh, someone's sick, they have too much blood. Right? We must take it out. That, that's foolish, we know now. But yet, back then, God gave them some laws that are very specific that has to do with maybe keeping them free from diseases. Another reason why I believe the Bible to be the word of God is the historical accuracy of the Bible. Now, again, the Bible is not written like a history book in all places. Some of it's written kind of like, uh, like an epic drama. It's written like poetry. It's written like with all this other kind of stuff. At the same time, though, there are specific historical elements in Scripture. There's names. There's places. There's kings and things like that. In the Smithsonian Department of Anthropology, their writing wrote this. It says, much of the Bible, in particular the historical books of the Old Testament, are as accurate historical documents as any that we have from antiquity, are in fact more accurate than many of the Egyptian and Mesopotamian and Greek histories. The Bible contains historically accurate information. Now, okay, well that by itself isn't that big of a deal, but if it had historically inaccurate information... If every single date and every single name and every single place didn't exist, which there are religious texts that mention tribes and kings and places and things that didn't exist, there is no historical evidence of. Archaeologists don't find them. But yet they do find the ones contained in Scripture. How do these people that aren't historians, they're not skilled in history, they're not great researchers. The only one that I could think about in Scripture that did a lot of research was Luke, right, when he wrote Luke and Acts. Besides that, they're not great historians, and yet the Bible contains historically accurate information. Also, in a response from a letter from the National Geographic Society, it said, I referred your inquiries to our staff archaeologist, Dr. George Stewart, and he said that archaeologists do indeed find the Bible a valuable reference tool and use it in many times for geographical relationships, old names, and relative chronology. So when you look at the Bible, even if you don't believe it's from God, you go, you know, we need to check out what it says historically, because it is historically accurate. So you have hygiene laws, scientific information, historical accuracy of Scripture. Makes me think that there's something special to the Bible. Another big one, we can't spend enough time with this one, but fulfillment of prophecy. There's tons of places where in the Old Testament, a prediction is made, and then later in the New Testament, it is fulfilled. And even in the Old Testament itself, there's predictions that are made, and then a couple generations later, they are fulfilled. And when you look at the time frame of when these books were written, you think, you know, that, that couldn't have just happened by chance. I mean, maybe one or two correlations could just be a good coincidence. But after a while, you start thinking, wait a second. There's prophecy after prophecy after prophecy being fulfilled. We're studying the book of Matthew on Wednesday nights. Over and over and over again, Matthew says, so was fulfilled what was written in the, and he'll mention a book or the Psalms 
and you start thinking, wait, either Matthew has the most masterful deception ever written, and he studied every single book of the Old Testament in its entirety and memorized every bit of it, and then was able to show how he can make all these weird coincidences, or prophecy is being fulfilled. I'll give you one easy one. We studied this last Wednesday night. In Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 and 13, written 500 B.C., whether you believe that the Bible's from God or not, you agree with around that date of the writing of this book. It says, I told them, if you think it is best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price of which they value me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Just like last week, we talked about Judas. Years later, 500 years after this was written, betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, that money was used to buy a potter's field, and Judas threw it into the house of the Lord. I can't make that accidental, okay? That, that's just, that just happens to be a coincidence. To me, I see that maybe there's supernatural guidance there. And that's just one prophecy, and I recommend you look up other prophecies and see how they're fulfilled in Scripture. One more, and then the lesson will be yours. Another reason why I believe the Bible to be something different is the integrity of the authors themselves. If the authors of the Bible were just mere men, they were just trying to deceive us in some way, the question is why? What benefit did any of Jesus' disciples have in spreading his message and writing it down? Was their life better? It wasn't. Did they die? Did they live a long, happy life? No, they all were martyred except for John, and he was exiled to an island. Not a nice one. Okay, it's not a vacation. So you have this idea here. People think, well, they were just trying to manipulate people. What did they gain from it? They didn't get notoriety and popularity and fame. They didn't get fortune. You know, a lot of religious leaders throughout history use their religious teaching to manipulate, exploit, and maybe for even, you know, personal sexual immorality and all that kind of stuff. They didn't do any of that. They, most of them lived lives of you know, celibacy and went out there and died for this cause. Why would they lie? And these are people that were there. And these are people that when they wrote down their books, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I think they knew we were going to doubt. And when they wrote it, they knew that people were already starting to doubt. So what did they do? They mentioned people's names. They mentioned names like, oh, the high priest named Malchus who got his ear chopped off. Why did they tell us that name? Because Malchus might still be alive, and you could go ask him. Why did they mention, well, he appeared to 500 people after his resurrection, many who are still here to this day? Because we can check their sources. Why is it when you write a scholarly paper, they require you to have a works cited or works reference page at the end? Because they want to know where you got your information. And yet, these biblical authors did that. And under the threat of persecution, they wrote it, they circulated it, they spread it, they wrote letters to people that would cause people to not like them. I mean, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, isn't making any friends. He didn't get any benefit from it. But he wrote it. And you think about these people who wrote this book, and why would we doubt what they're saying as not being an eyewitness to what they are recording? So with that in mind, then let me ask the question. When we begin to, and again, this lesson doesn't conclude anything with this. you got to do your own work on this. But when we question, think, observe, and follow the evidence, where does it lead? To me, and I hope you too, 
it's led me to the conclusion that the Bible is not like any other book. In fact, the design of the Bible leads me to the conclusion that the Bible has a design beyond human ability. There's something there beyond just a bunch of good moral teachers writing down their teaching. In fact, I believe that it is reasonable and logical to believe that the Bible is inspired. You're not buying into a fairy tale if you believe that. All you're doing is saying, look, the evidence is there. There's something special about this, and I need to dig into it a little bit more. That's a fair answer. There's something so unique about this book that it makes me think that there's a design there beyond the human element. Therefore, I'm going to dig into it a little bit more. And if a book is supernaturally guided, then maybe it's important. Maybe it's authoritative. Maybe I should follow it. Maybe I should obey it. Right? That's the steps we take with this. But I believe it's reasonable and logical to believe that the Bible is inspired. Now, that's our second lesson in our series on why I believe what we believe. But next week, we're going to be talking about why we believe in Jesus, why we believe in him as a historical figure, but also as the Messiah and as the Son of God and as our So I encourage you to be here next week as we study that topic. Um, share these lessons online. Share the message with other people. If there's any way that we can help you follow Jesus learn more about the Bible, please let us know. Steve has selected a song. Let's all stand together and sing the song that was selected. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless. Thank you.